is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Hello, I'm Nadege Roland, a Distinguished Fellow for China Studies at the National Bureau of Asian Research. And today I'm honored and delighted to host the Honorable Kelly Curry, former U.S. Ambassador at Large for Global Women's Issues and U.S. Representative at the UN Commission on the Status of Women. Throughout her professional career in diplomacy and in the think tank world, Ambassador Curry has been an ardent defender of human rights, political reform, and development. She brings an unparalleled expertise and underground experience on Myanmar, among other topics. As I kicked off uh, NBR's new project called Mapping China's Strategic Space, I thought she would be a fantastic person to talk to about the malleable, fluid, and very complex frontier that separates, or perhaps rather permeates, China and Burma, Myanmar. But before I uh, launch into um, a series of questions to Ambassador Curry, I would uh, want to maybe describe what we're trying to do with this Mapping China's Space Project. Um, what we really are trying to do is to understand the, the Chinese elites, uh, quote unquote, mental map of what constitutes the, their nation's strategic space. And by that, I mean the areas outside of uh, China's national territory that may be considered as crucial uh, for China's survival and security writ large. And most of us are familiar with the Russian concept of it's near abroad. But I don't know how many of us have thought about how China envisions its own strategic space and its own, what it's called, its, its periphery or, or its greater periphery, as Xi Jinping calls it now. So to, to dig into uh, a very uh, contemporary and important uh, component of this periphery, um, uh, Kelly, uh, I'm going to ask you, um, after thanking you so much for joining us today, uh, to maybe walk us through, give us a little bit of, uh, of a background of China's historical relations with Burma slash Myanmar. We're going to use both both terms during that during our conversation, I think, um, and um, give us a like a, a high altitude summary of what happened and why is China so interested in its relations with this country? Well, thank you, Nadej, for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you about um, about. China and about their strategic thinking, because I always learn something from you whenever we have these conversations. So um, I deeply appreciate it. And um, as I told you before, I really love this project because I think that it is important for um, for policymakers, especially and those of us who think about policy in the Indo-Pacific to really have um, a better grasp on how China views its near abroad, as you call it. And I, I, I like to use that term with China because I think that it is, it does help people to map to that concept that they may already be familiar with from Russia. Because Burma um, or Myanmar, and I do use them interchangeably, it's no longer really a political issue, so I just use them interchangeably, um, is 
on that is is part of that hinterlands um, thinking in China in Chinese strategic space in, in the way I see it, um, and they they're part of a very unsettled periphery. Um, going back to at the you know at the time of the the Qing. Um, and then evolving into the, I'm not going to go all the way back in history. We'll just go to the Qing. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty far, far <laughs> in the past already. Yes. During, during the Qing and the Republican period, um, Burma was part of the British empire and there, um, and was, was part of British India and had been seized by by the British and incorporated into British India um, as as part of the the British colonial project, obviously, um, which uh, and, and it bordered Yunnan province, which is the most diverse um, province in China. Um, nearly all of China's recognized 54 ethnic nationalities um, have have a presence in in Yunnan. And I think it's it's really an incredibly uh, ethnically diverse place. If you break it down by the prefecture um, level, you see that there are autonomous prefectures, um, Tibetan autonomous prefectures, um, Dali. You have a whole host of of smaller. Um, bits and pieces within Yunnan that are that are subdivided. And so it was always a very fluid frontier place in China in Chinese history, going back, you know, across empires. Um was very was one of those the, you know, mountains are high and the emperor is far away places because mm -hmm. were mountains, high mountains in between Yunnan and 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 wherever the the seat of, of the the Chinese Empire happened to be, it's a fluid border. It's um it's it's technically resolved, but I think that in reality, um it it's it still remains a very fluid border. Um, recently during COVID, when the Chinese shut down the border. It, it, that was probably the hardest the border has ever been in the history of this region um, and because it's such a such a fluid place. It's very mountainous. It's very um, tough terrain on both sides. And it's um, and again, you have ethnic groups that cross over um, and you've had ethnic you've had ethnic Han Chinese um, or Chinese people um, move into Burma in large numbers historically back and forth. Um, and so, and moving up into the more, you know, under the PRC since the PRC period um, and after the, the clap, the, the withdrawal of British colonialism in the region and the independence of Burma, um, Burma became a major staging ground for Mao's revolutionary communism efforts. And so they, there was a, a very aggressive and active and Chinese sponsored communist um, insurgency in Burma in the um, 50s, 60s and 70s that reached within, um, you know, 60 miles of the capital of Yangon at, at its peak. And it was um, very much run out of Kunming, out of Yunnan province. It was, you know, it was a, it was a project almost of that, of that province. And there's always been a very tight link and, and Beijing has always looked to, you know, under the, well, not always, but since the, you know, under the communist party, Kunming has sort of had um, Burma as part of its AOR. It's, um, and, and so has been really 
because of its proximity to it and because of the the cultural you know fluidity there there's been from from after the especially after the insurgency kind of peaked out and mal stopped after mal fell and the 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 whole revolutionary um aspect of of china's foreign policy withered away um and it became more of a trade-based engagement with with burma um there was uh it it you really you really saw kunming take the lead there the the regime in Burma, the Nguyen regime, was a anti-communist regime. Um, it was, you know, it was very autarkic and very nationalistic. And I think that this is the other, you know, talking about the Burmese side. We talked a lot about the Chinese side, but not so much about the Burmese side. And post-colonial Burma was like many post-colonial states, quite autarkic, um, in a way, very socialistic, but not but very aggressively anti-communist, which is a bit of a, seems like a bit of a contradiction, but in the case of Burma um, was not because they wanted to remain very non-aligned. So they were, it was a very, very strict non-alignment, but one that also kind of played around with balancing and hedging and using the, the Russians or the Soviets, the United States and China and hedging against all of these powers. Um, within Burma um, and quite autarkic, also very Bama, which is the predominant ethnic nationality, Bama Buddhist, chauvinist. Um, the I think that one of the key reasons why you never saw Burma, Burma's communist, why why the Nguyen regime in particular was highly socialistic and and very much like a North Korea style economic model, um, self sufficiency and all of that, but rejected communism, was because of the the, the tight links between regime um, legitimacy and and allegiance to to Buddhism. So I think that that's kind of brings us up to more or less the modern. Era that I would say the the post Mao modern era where um, you had you've had since the 1980s since um, Deng's opening up um, reform and opening up you had a lot of Chinese uh, traders going into Burma um, efforts even by the 90s you had approximately two million Chinese. Um, who were living and working and trading in, in Upper Burma, primarily in the Mandalay area. Um, a huge commercial presence. Huge commercial presence. Even, like I said, even in the 80s and 90s, Mandalay was already considered to be quite a Chinese town. It was, you know, it had a huge Chinatown and the, and like, the new the newer buildings in the 80s and 90s which are still unfortunately some of the newer buildings in burma uh in mandalay were they looked indistinguishable from what you would see in a you know in a small chinese city with the bathroom tile on the outside <laughs> you know what i'm talking about yes exactly so yeah um and and so it's very um there was a and then the res the residual Chinese the residual Burmese Communist Party, which is again very Sino Burmese blended, became um, 
divided into different armed groups and um, that were heavily involved in drugs, heavily involved in gambling and other illicit um, and gray zone trade all along the border there. Um, they, because they had money and had access to weapons, they were able to take over substantial territory in Sean state. Um, they started out doing mostly poppy, opium, um, heroin, but moved into methamphetamines in the 90s, and it was very lucrative. They were exporting huge amounts of methamphetamines, yaba, um, into Thailand and into China. There, you, there were, I remember in the 90s, looking at maps of the, the drugs and the AIDS vectors going out of Burma into Yunnan province and into, <laughs> into Thailand. Um, and and all of these public health concerns around because the truckers would go, you know, through Burma from Yunnan down to Bangkok, and there was just this, you know, and it was just a, a, a like it was just this kind of horrifying graphic that that has stuck in my mind for decades. <laughs> um, and now, uh, and 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 because of the instability in Burma, it and the the regime's instability, and the especially after the the democratic movement, the eighty eight uprising by students, which happened right before the Tiananmen uprising, and was repressed in a similarly brutal and violent way. Um, and then the 1990 elections, which the NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi won in a landslide unexpectedly by the, you know, the regime didn't expect them to win anyway. Um, she was already under house arrest when the, when um, the, the military junta um, lost that election and their party lost that election resoundingly. And so they just ignored it basically and said it wasn't a real election. And then, um, and, and from 1990 until 2012, they had been working on what they called their um, path to a disciplined flourishing democracy. And, but it was really just a, a very brutal military rule that was, con that was concurrently dealing with ethnic insurgencies and ethnic, um, separatist and, and insurgent movements all around the periphery of Burma, including on the China-Burma border. And these um, these drug armies, as I call them, which is very reductive and not very politically correct, um, they did have strategic, again, depth in Burma. They became the most powerful of the ethnic armed organizations in the country in Burma. Um, they had strategic depth in China, I mean, in Yunnan, and had very close ties with the Yunnan government. They set up, they now set up extensive business networks in Yunnan um, and actually beyond. They started out in Yunnan, but now they've gone beyond. Like, so they own a lot of businesses in China um, that in, in these Wa areas, in particular in the Wa and Kokong areas, Chinese is spoken. Um, the Yuan is used as the currency. Um, China Unicom and China Telecom are, provide the um, cellular infrastructure and networks. And this is all technically inside of Burmese territory. So you have these little, this statelet that is basically outside of the control of the central authorities of Burma for pretty much since the 70s. Actually, I don't think that even since independence, this area has been under effective control of the central authorities, to be honest. It really sounds like this Bur Burma-China border is very blurry. It's yes, completely it's... enmeshed in one another. The, right. It's very blurry. 
Yes, especially um, especially in the law areas, it's very blurry. Um, on the you know on the up in to Kachin State, it you have a hard you have a border, you have a physical border, and you have border crossings, and you have them in Wa State too. Again, as I said, during COVID, they were able to like they put up huge fences, enough. know where the border is. Like everybody knows generally where the border is, um, but it's it's pretty. Again, the the ethnic groups are on both sides of it. You have the the what are called the Kachin on and the or Jingpa on one side in in Burma, and then they have a corresponding community on the other side of the border in in Yunnan. Same with the with all of these groups, they all cross over. Um, the Dali or the the Red Shan. Um, or the, you know, they're on both sides of the Shan state, um, you know, on border. So, it, yes, it's incredibly fluid. It's incredibly fuzzy, but there, but everybody kind of knows where the line is, which is, it, it's very, um, it, this is very typical in, in this part of the world. Also, though, you see the same thing in India, Burma, um, on the India Burma border where, um, you know, it, it's. It's a very poorly defined border in some ways, but everybody knows which side of the border they're on. And um, and so you, because the Indians make sure that they are not letting people cross into India. And in a lot of ways- So it's, it, yeah, it's, it's sort of overlapping ethnicity and you said also trade exchanges and also illegal uh, smuggling and drug trafficking. Uh, there's a whole, local subsystem going on on, on that it, and it has been at times completely again on the burmese side much more so very independent of the state um how this trade how the movement of people and goods operates um has been much more you have what i call disaggregated sovereignty up mm -hmm. on these borders in many ways um and and it's it's not as Pronounced on the Chinese side, but certainly there were there were long periods of time where Kunming was left to deal with with Burma, kind of. However, it was like a Kunming thing, and Beijing just kind of, and it really, you know, it periodic episodically something would happen where Beijing would be like, "Oh my God, what is going on down there? What are you guys doing?" And for instance, there were um, there were some when the Burma Army decided to attack the Kokang militia. And sent seventy thousand, I think, um, Kokong refugees into China um, within a matter of days. Like thousands, tens of thousands of, of refugees flowed into China from the Kokong area, and the, and Beijing was like, "What is happening? <laughs> this cannot go on." And and so they like sort of started looking down on Kuming and started you know micromanaging them a little bit more. But it's very ebb and flow. Today. I think that, like, in across everything, Beijing is in much tighter control of what happens to kind of fast forward to the present. And part of that, and this goes back again, I think that it started before she, and it started, if you look at the Go West campaign that kind of preceded the Belt and Road, that was, you know, the laying the groundwork for the Belt and Road, and the Go Out and the Go West. And, you know, this. You know, this started under under Deng and 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 Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, where it's like these in, interior areas of China that were much poorer than the coastal areas, and the need to provide economic development. You saw them 
encouraging people to go out. And because Burma is has a long border, a long coastline on the Indian Ocean, um, and Yunnan is very landlocked, and that interior part of China is very landlocked, um, it became clear early on, I think, in the 90s. But I, I think it really, like, people really started to wake up to the fact that China saw Burma as a strategic outlet to the Indian Ocean um, when they started developing these pipelines across Upper Burma, um, really engaging in, in heavy uh, engagement and port activity in Burma, um, especially in Rakhine State and these pipelines that go across Rakhine and Kachin states. When did that start, roughly? Um, the 2000s? Or? Started in the in the first yeah in the two thousands. Um, they they'd always China didn't have the wherewithal until the two thousands to really do anything about it. I think they'd always looked at that as okay, this is a potential outlet, just like with Guadar, and but they didn't have the, the ability to to right. um, to make it to kind of reify it. But they've now. In, in over the past 20 years, they've had more of an ability to, to reify it. So you saw a succession of agreements with the, um, the old military regime before 2010 to build the port and the pipeline across um, the Yadana, well, first, not the Yadana, the, um, the Jokpu pipeline that goes from uh, Jokpu in Rakhine State over to Yunnan province. Um, then as the Belt and Road kind of picked as it moved from Go West to Belton Road, you saw it pick up steam and saw the, the spidering of the map going out with rail lines, pipelines, um, and, and other kind of infrastructure, highways, and, and damming on. So this is the other thing that has happened is that because the you know, Burma is a very rivering, it's a Delta state, it it's, um, has major rivers in it and has a lot of potential for hydropower. Um, and because of the, the elevation and, and the way the rivers flow there, the Chinese came in and were very interested in damming and they've been damming the river that's closest to them, the Salween, um, which is a major Mekong tributary and that, um, and it's been incredibly destructive and has caused huge, um, unhappiness all along the, the river and is having major downstream negative effects, not just on Burma, but also on Thailand because the Salween flows into Thailand as well. Um, and then they were also, they, one of the biggest kind of wake up calls, one of those times when Beijing was like, what is Kunming doing with, you know, they're not doing this right, um, was during when a, a deal that had been signed in 2008. Um, to develop a mega dam that would have flooded an area the size of Singapore in Kachin State um, in an area called Mietzon that is at the confluence of the Irrawaddy and another river. Um, and it's the spiritual homeland of the Kachin, the, the spiritual like creation site of the Kachin people. Like it's a very important um, and it's an ecologically um, important zone huge biodiversity issues and all sorts of things, planning to to build a gigantic dam there, like, you know, bigger than, I think it was either as big as or bigger than Three Gorges, like huge dam. Really? And it, it caused a national, uh, and this was under the military regime, caused a national political movement against it that because the the regime was transitioning in that, in that 2010 period, um, 
And so you had a willingness on the part of the, the quasi civilian former military uh, generals who were in charge at that time during that transitional period to respond to popular concerns about this. And because it was, you know, it became a issue in the Bama heartland. It wasn't just an ethnic issue. It became a, a, an issue in the, in the part of the country that they care about basically. Um, it, they paused this project. They, they put it on hold and they told the Chinese, you need to stop developing this, this site. And this, again, the Chinese government and the party state totally freaked out about this. They, they blamed the United States. And I can tell you, we were just as surprised as anybody else when this happened, <laughs> like nobody here expected the thing saying government to stop this mega dam, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars development project that they had signed on to. Um, and that the, the military regime had signed on to, it was a huge thing. And it was actually one of these things that here in the United States caused and in Europe caused people to think, oh, this, these guys are real reformers. They listen to the people, they care about the environment. Really, I think it was just more, you know, they were, I don't know, they were, yes, somewhat, but not really, um, not in a meaningful sense. It was pretty superficial, but it did cause the Chinese to wake up and engage in one of these, you know, who lost Burma exercises where they basically blamed Kunming. And so Beijing since 2010 has really taken a lot more direct control over um, policy with Burma. Um, also as a result of the importance of these infrastructure projects that they've been building, um, the, the oil and gas pipeline, as well as the, the, the transportation, um, the general transportation routes to the, the ocean, to the Indian Ocean. So today, you know, and, and the relationship is still very, I would say, weird. It's a very, it's, I, I feel like it's a very um, fluid relationship between whoever's in charge and in Burma and the, and the Chinese party state, because there's still deep seated suspicion. Um, there's a, a very real and I think very genuine concern that China is going to start nibbling off pieces of Burma just, you know, start taking some of the areas up on the border, um, especially because Kachin and, and some of these other areas are at the source of major rare earths that's that China exploits up to half of some of the critical minerals that China processes and exports um, start out in Kachin state and are being strip mined in very disgusting and environmentally damaging ways um, in Kachin state and trucked over the border to be processed in Yunnan. Um, that's, I know that's true for terbium and dysprosium and a couple of other, um, they have major deposits of tin, silver, copper. Um, China runs huge mines um, for all of those minerals in Burma. Um, and so there's a lot of that kind of thing um, that, that goes on. All of that mining is is done very very badly <laughs> um, and is it fuels conflict on both sides of conflicts um, both local and larger scale conflicts and since the latest coup in february 2021 there 
there are very few areas of the country that are peaceful and stable right now, but um, you will see that the most peaceful and stable areas of the country right now tend to be those areas around Chinese projects because the Chinese have basically paid off all sides. They will they will pay off, sell weapons to, and and engage with whoever they need to engage with on any side of this conflict, and it is a multidimensional. Um, conflict. So it's not just, you know, a, a straight up civil war with two sides. It's very fragmented um, as as you can expect from a state that, that has such disaggregated sovereignty to begin with in the best of times and which is has never really gelled into a nation state since its um, independence. And China has found a way to basically benefit from whatever the political status quo is in Burma, whether it's transitioning to democracy or in an autarkic regime or in civil war. Beijing has found a way. They're very opportunistic and they just keep you know eyes on the prize and just keep doing what they do. And they, like I said, they'll work with any of the groups. They don't really care. They maintain the fiction that there is a government in Burma that is, you know, that, that occupies you know, an international personality, but really they just deal with whoever local at whatever local power broker or local actor they need to in order to protect their interests. I, think it, I mean, everything that you said really resonates with me because it's such a great illustration of how China exercises influence over its periphery and this very malleable, very loose way of asserting its control or hegemony, if I may use this word, over its, and, and you use many times, you know, this idea of fluid frontiers. And in a way, it really is um, a very imperial mindset. You know, this is what you would expect of a continental empire that is trying to exert control over its marches and those fluid frontiers uh, that are mostly populated with ethnical groups that are different from the, the majority ethnical group of the empire itself. Um, and what's so interesting about it is that this is happening in the 21st century. This is not 14th century or nine, even 19th exactly. century, you know. And, and, and what you're describing is this incremental expansion that starts with almost like cultural exchanges between local ethnic groups and then um, expands to trade and to commercial domains. And then after China is more powerful, expands into very strategic areas such as um resource extraction and as you said you know, because of the geography of of burma myanmar and this very long coastline that they have that gives them this opportunity to go into the indian ocean very important strategically for for china itself as well so you can see that it it crosses various lines across time 20 years is not that long really um where the 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 array of strategic interests is is getting more and more layered on the chinese side and this ability as you said to um interact with various actors uh various groups in a 
extremely complex local environment is and also at very like lowest level. I mean, not even just subnational, but like really local actors. Yes. I mean, I'm it's hearing reports. Yeah, like extreme hyper local, like you know, neighborhood to neighbor, township to township, like really able to just in the area and the vicinity of strategic assets, they're doing it. They're not, you know, in other places. But if there are Chinese people, if there are Chinese assets, then they are on it. They're making sure that they have relationships with whoever they need to have relationships with. And they're very flexible about how they do that. I, I just want to maybe finish on um, the constraints that you that you may, you know, be able to observe. I mean, you in the course of your presentation or, or your, of your of this conversation, you have said a few things that made me think of the possibility that things are not going to go necessarily, um, you know, Beijing's way or even Kunming's way, wherever the center of power is. Um, but uh, including what you said about this huge dam project that was stalled, um, and of course, you know, I spend most of my time looking at what Beijing wants, but it doesn't happen in a vacuum. The you know the local um, right. countries and people have their own say in what is going on in their own country in their own neighborhood. And what Beijing wants is not necessarily what the what the local countries really want uh, too. So, uh, this might be one of the constraints that you see to this, um, you know, Definitely. increased influence and expansion. But are there other things that you may um, want to uh, identify for us? Yeah, I mean, I think that that Beijing's flexible attitude towards um, Burma's sovereignty is is a problem for for China on the ground in Burma, because as I've mentioned, this is at least at the at the Bama Buddhist kind of majority level is a very nationalistic population. Um, and even though they are in this, you know, deep and grinding conflict internally, that is that is really ripping the country apart. There is a there's the potential for it to come out of this conflict. Finally, establishing itself as a as a real nation with a with a national identity that's based on something other than um, local ethnicity and other issue and, and religion, which is what you know has kind of driven the the Burmese um, identity because of the domination of this one ethnic group. But that what is happening right now? There's the conflict that's happening. But there's also a parallel political process that's underway within the opposition to the military that is building a that is trying to work through these issues that have never been resolved since independence since 1948 and trying to actually rebuild rebuild a national identity that is not based on Bama Buddhist chauvinism mm -hmm. based mm -hmm. on more equitable and um and and and, and different concept of the state. And this presents, um, this will, you know, because of the role that China has played in preserving the military regime, um, they are deeply unpopular at a, at a, you know, at a popular level before, um, you know, during, before and during the transition, there was a deep 
set of there was you know not only is there this deep seated enmity within the kind of the military because of having to fight the communist party of burma which was their their enemy and it was backed by by the chinese communist party but now there's this broader popular enmity that that during the that transitional time china worked really hard to try to do a lot of cultural and out you know economic outreach to build ties after the Myitsung dam they were like well we have got to do we've got some work to do here to win burma back to our team um and they did a lot and they did sort of soften some of those that enmity it has come roaring back because of the perception at the popular level which is completely 100 accurate but not totally the whole picture I can say that, that they are basically backstopping the military government um, because they continue to sell it weapons. They continue to cut deals with it. They continue to do things that recognize it as the de facto government um, of Burma. And they continue to have a very disparate treatment of the opposition forces where they will meet with them, but you know, unofficially and again, do all of those things that they do when they want to, you know, balance things like this. So they, there is, there were during the, um, during the initial post coup protests, there were very um, strong anti-China protests, um, you know, protests in front of the Chinese embassy um, and, and really, and, and there's been a lot of um, anger at, at China for, People know that China was blocking UN action on Burma, um, and this this is after. So during in 2017, you may remember that there was the genocide of the Rohingya, and China fully provided political cover um, to to Burma in during that, and and Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD, and and even you know at the popular level to the extent that they were you know driving this or writing, hard to say, the popular um, hostility toward the Rohingya, toward the UN, toward the West for taking the side of the Rohingya um, and, and not listening to Burma and this feeling they were piling on. But the, but the Chinese and the Russians were there for, for Burma. They, you know, they, they blocked action in the, in the Security Council and, and, and stood in solidarity with the Burmese um, at that time. And now they continue they're again at the state to state level china has has just acted as if they're the military regime is the same as the uh, democratically elected government they'll just do what they do um but this has created and, and especially now that some of that anti-rohingya sentiment has begun to modulate and this rebuilding process that i was talking about before is happening and and people are recognizing that the you know the, the, this there's there's been a shift a real shift especially um within the revolutionary forces in thinking about the rohingya and understanding that the what the military was capable of and believing now that the military was definitely capable of doing what the rohingya said they did um because there was genuine disbelief among people who had never been on the sharp end of the the burma army that they would engage in that sort of behavior they just you know couldn't believe it but all the ethnic nationalities are like yeah we know that we've seen that we know exactly what's going on there um but now the bama the heartland um they they see it too and so anyway this it's you're you're seeing a rewriting of the recent past 
and a reevaluation of China's role um, and how they have basically been one of the factors that has allowed the military to retain control and power in the country. Um, and 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 people do not want to be they they don't necessarily know what they want. Um, but they know what they don't want, and they don't want to be ruled by this military. And to the extent that they see the Chinese holding it up, um, it, it's a problem. Also, because of China's direct and and unrelenting and and hyperlocal interference in, in in Burma, it is going to create those antibodies. I mean, again, they can't seem to help themselves from behaving in this really extractive and narrowly self-interested way, um, even when it starts to redound, you know, against them. And so I think that that is, and, and it's, it points out the hypocrisy of China's repeated, you know, talk about recognizing um, about sovereignty and letting countries manage their internal affairs and, you know, and their territorial integrity when you see China behaving the way that they are behaving. Um, I think that so they're setting themselves up for long term hostility um, on the part of from the Burmese people toward them. Um, I think also at a certain point, if if depending on how long this conflict and you know Burma has basically been in some form of armed conflict since its founding in 1948 it is really one of the most unstable places on the planet um and while china will benefit from that you know they'll find ways to be opportunistic and benefit from that instability there are going to be negative externalities to it at a certain point um and they are th th those things are going to impact on 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 the Chinese population, so I think that you, you those those are the I think limiting factors. I think also because even the the most regressive and horrifying military regime does not generally want to be considered a you know a Chinese puppet or client. You're going to see them continue to try to find ways to. Um, Edge and to to balance China, whether it's letting the Japanese in or dealing with the Indians or you know the the generals in Nevada have proven quite skillful at manipulating um, the 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 powers around them and that engage with them over time. They may be running out of steam on that, but I don't you know I, I think that long term. It's not going to be great um, to have this really broken place on on their border. Again, they may be able to take some advantage of it in the short term, but I think long term, it's it's not. And it it if they think that it just creates opportunities for them, I think that they're wrong because it creates opportunities for others as well. And 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 I think that that's where. You know, they, they spent a lot of effort to try to keep other powers out of the region and to try to work with ASEAN and others to keep to push the US um, in particular and to really push back on the UK as you know, they see the UK as as the former colonial power also as kind of a stalking horse for US interests in Burma. And so they really work hard to limit and, and kind of undermine the ability of the UK to 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 advance it's and in, in Western interests in Burma. Um, 
but I think that at a certain point there the way because it is so extractive and it is so damaging to the Burmese people that there will be long-term consequences. This brings us to the conclusion of our conversation for today. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to explore and learn more about our project and get additional insights on China's evolving strategic frontiers, visit our website www.strategicspace.nbr.org. Asia Insight Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.